Blog Talk Radio. Oh, it's working, yay. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up the world, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. They never will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, the sun is shining, it's beautiful outside And this is MJ Network and I'm your host Fran Lewis And that is TrinityHouseEntertainment.net That is Rachel and Michael that created this special opening just for me. And today we have the author of Anarchy of Mice. Where did you find out what the blind mice are? You're going to be really careful. Watch your checkbook, watch your finances, and be careful because you never know when they could take it. So good morning, Jeff. How are you? And this is exciting. This book is really interesting. Thanks, Fran. Thanks so much for having me again. I, I enjoyed uh, talking to you last week about Pine Box Vendetta, and I'm excited to talk about Anarchy too, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a crazy big wild book, and uh, and um, yeah, lots of echoes of kind of stuff going on today. It is, it really is. So how would how would define how anarchy is defi- is defined in this novel, and tell us the significance of the prologue that got it started. That was really amazing. Right, right. So anarchy here in this book is just. You know, governments losing control of things. You know, larger mm-hmm. societal unrest. Uh, specifically, it'll be the, the way that it happens here is going to be data loss. You know, and we're, we have such an interconnected society of you know bank accounts and property lines and everything else, mm-hmm. and and personal records are all digital. And so, um, what the book really imagines is what the world might look like if a lot of that electronic data started to go away or be unreliable. Um, and as far as the prologue, so the prologue is kind of a, a, an adventure set piece here that gives the background of Piper Jackson, who's she'll become an important mm-hmm. figure in the Blind Mice, mm-hmm. which is the main. The Blind Mice are kind of the main anarchist hacker group that is going to bring about this big societal unrest. And the the prologue starts when Piper is not in the not in the Blind Mice, just. She's just a kid. I think she's 17 as the prologue starts. And it kind of shows she's working at a company with her brother, and it's a company where there's something kind of nefarious going on, and it ends up getting pinned on her brother. And kind of there's kind of a, a scene where some health inspectors come, and there's a, a little bit of a, mm. you know, uh, of a chase. Um, so it's an adventurous scene, but it, it also kind of gives the background of this dissatisfaction with the status quo and this kind of feeling that corporations are – are uh, are not treating people right, and so Piper becomes mm-hmm. really disaffected and embittered by the fact that her brother gets all this bad stuff pinned on her, on him. So it, it sets the stage for her to kind of turn to this more extreme movement where they're going to try to get revenge on corporations and just turn the tide and and turn turn things upside down uh, to create more fairness and equality throughout society. You know, so the people better watch out because this is not so far from reality. You never know. You just don't know. 
I mean, just because you think you're safe online, you have to be careful. I mean, just just anything. I get things from my bank that says, your thing has been disabled. I said, no, it's not. I don't even answer it. I just send it to the abuse. They're aware. Right, right. And, and you get so many kind of fake messages from other people yeah. telling you that, you know, something's been canceled and you don't really know which ones to believe. Right? I don't even answer it. There was one that yeah. left a message from Amazon two weeks ago. Your Amazon account is bad and you have to, you have to send us whatever. And I called Amazon and they actually know and they did nothing about it, so I just ignore it. So right, right. we have two more characters. We have Quaid and Derwood, and this is the Third Chance Enterprises. So tell us about them and how come they got this Molly to come part of the team. She's one of my favorite characters, by the way. She's brave. Oh, thanks, thanks. Yeah, so Quaid Rafferty and Derwood Oak Jones are kind of the, the, two, uh, the two guys that are part of the Third Chance Enterprises team. They have these big epic biographies where Quaid Rafferty used to be the governor of Massachusetts, um, and he was he's brought down by a, a scandal with a call girl, uh, actually two scandals. Um, and so he's kind of brought low and spent some time in jail. Uh, and then Derwood O. Jones is this this uh, guy from West Virginia. He's like a he's a Marine, or he was kind of a legend in the Marine Corps. Um, and then his wife, who was also a soldier, is killed in the Middle East. And he kind of goes outside of the chain of command to take revenge on the, the terrorist cell that killed his wife. Um, and so he's, he's dishonorably discharged. So they're both these kind of big, larger-than-life figures who had big positions in their field and then were disgraced. Um, in fact, dis- disgraced in two different ways. So Quay gets the idea to start a freelance operative team, and he calls them Third Chance Enterprises because uh, it's their third chance. You know, they've both kind of failed twice. Um, so, uh, and Derwood hates the name. He's kind of a plain-spoken, you know, kind of, you know, action above talk mm-hmm. sort of character. So he doesn't like all of Quaid's branding and and kind of talk. Um, so they they form this team that's gonna that's kind of freelancers for hire that take on jobs, kind of like the A Team, mm-hmm. if you remember the the '80s series. Um, and then as the book begins, they're hired to try to take down the blind mice. There's a, one of the companies mm-hmm. that is being targeted by the blind mice feels like the police and the FBI aren't making any progress, so they hire Quaid and Durwood to try to inf- try to get inside the blind mice and bring them down. And so because Quaid and Durwood are, you know, they're both in their 40s, they're not really, they, they can't really pretend to be hackers. You know, the blind mice are a, a team of basically young, kind of idealistic bloggers and, and tech people, and they know that they can't really dress themselves up you know, in that way. So they go to Molly McGill, who is this, kind of the third member of the Third Chance Enterprises team. Um, and Molly, she's a single mother in West, in, uh, in New Jersey. Um, she's she's kind of overwhelmed at home. She's got all kinds of things going domestically, but she also has this private investigator firm called McGill Investigators. Mm-hmm. And the guys, Quaid and Durwood, sometimes for certain cases will bring her into the case when they need somebody who an accomplice kind of who who's got her certain skills. So she's a little bit like, you know, if you think of Stephanie Plum, um the character mm-hmm. from the Janet Ivanovich books, you know, one for the money and and so on. She's a little bit in that mold, you know, and I kind of when I started this series, I wanted to kind of give readers something of of each sort of slice of the thriller landscape so you have Molly's kind of the single mother private investigator amateur sleuth type of person Quaid is the slick talking womanizer kind of a wisecracker and then Durwood is a little bit more like a Jack Reacher figure you know he's he's kind of military and 
and kind of guns and ammo. And so they, there's a lot of interesting dynamics between the three of them. You know, Quaid and Derwood especially are kind of mismatched. Quaid and Molly have kind of a romantic thing that, that goes throughout the series. So, mm. um, so I, I really sort of spent some time and tried to balance out those the three main heroes and give every reader kind of somebody that they really kind of were rooting for and really felt like they spoke to them. I was afraid for her. She's bored to do this, let me tell you. So, she, she didn't, they don't exactly, people say to you, okay, you're a member of the Blind Mice. There's a whole process that's kind of scary. So what was she supposed to do as a member? And this blog, that was brilliant. How did you decide to create that, the blog that she was supposed to do, to sound like she was a little off the wall and get right, noticed? Right, right. I think, yeah, so I think as the series, as the book starts, you know, the the Third Chance Enterprises team has the idea that they need to, to position Molly to get an invitation to the blind mice because as the book starts, the blind mice are they're the most wanted, you know, terrorists or activists mm-hmm. in the United States, so the FBI is after them. And so they are not kind of, they don't have an open-door policy. If you want to join the mice, you can. You know, you really have to be invited. And so Molly uh, begins a blog called mollywantschange.org, uh, where she posts, you know, some kind of controversial positions, mm. anti-corporate stuff and kind of things like that with the idea that she'll attract the attention of the blind mice. And, of course, you know, it's hard, you know, you start a blog and you don't get much traffic to the beginning. So uh, Quaid Rafferty, was, again, he's the ex-governor of Massachusetts, he uses his connections in the media and in government to get her blog more publicity. And so he continually gets her, you know, retweets and, and uh and mentions in newspapers and stuff like that to raise her profile so that she'll bubble up to the kind of popularity where the blind mice will reach out to her and see if she wants to join them in their kind of, you know, righteous cause against the establishment. Well, that's that's scary. Now but she's got two children, uh Karen and Zach. So if she does this, how are they gonna stay safe? And who's gonna help her? Right, and and that's the biggest concern for Molly, and her yeah. her main uh, reservation as she starts the job is safe is safety, the safety of her kids, Zach and Karen. Zach's fourteen, and Karen's a kindergartner. Um, and what would happen to them if she was arrested or, God forbid, killed? Um, so that's definitely a big hurdle. You know, she has her grandmother there, who's uh, kind of a cantankerous mm-hmm. uh, lady who can help out some. But that's definitely a concern for her. Now, as the book goes on and the anarchy in the world gets bigger, I think Molly starts to to feel that there's a flip side where, you know, if she can really go out there and be a person who can turn this around and make the world safer, that that, you know, there's some benefit to that for her children. So it kind of cuts both ways. At the beginning, she's very concerned about being caught and not being there for her kids. But as the book goes on, she starts to feel, as she gets more confident in the role, she starts to feel like maybe she has some power to change their world for the better and that, you know, maybe she needs to see it through to the end. She's brave. I don't know how many people would, would chance it like that. Yeah. I mean, this is not exactly the easiest thing to do. So <laughs> she does this blog and she gets noticed, but how did you create the messages and codes I mean, this is the Internet and stuff, and nobody realized that it was just the dark web. 
Well, she goes on the dark web for some of the of the uh yeah, saying, of the yeah. research she does about the the blind mice. I think when she actually gets the messages, I think that you know the mice are using a lot of burner phones and things like that and they're using, you know, they're dropping notes, you know, at some convenience store and giving her instructions to kind of go find them and so there's a lot of kind of cat and mouse that goes on with the mice. They don't want to reveal themselves at the very beginning in case she's working with law enforcement or something like that. And of course she is working with third chance enterprise but so they've got a lot of mechanisms to try to confuse her and you know they're just they're just also kind of wild and mysterious in in general you know so i think their their methods are a little bit off the wall to begin with but they're interesting though they're not boring they're not the <laughs> no, kind of antagonist that they're going to say that i'm going to say oh god why am i reading this like i've been right. doing lately seriously i wouldn't even <laughs> tell you how many books I've been reading a couple, like I'm saying, I need root canal better than this. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. So who is Steed and why is he connected to Quaid and Derwood? So Jim Steed is the CEO of a company called American Dynamics. And they're kind of like a, a yeah. big industrial American company that has factories all over the place. Um, you know, kind of a slow plodding country. Um, and they are named as one of the blind mice's dirty dozen. The blind mice have this list of the the dozen worst companies in the in the country mm-hmm. based on either you know pollution or or or, or um, you know income inequality or CEO pay something like that. Um, so Steed and he has a history with Quaid. You know Quaid has all these kind of contacts that he uses to get these jobs. So Steed is seeing his factories. Uh, you know, crippled, and he's seeing their website hacked by the blind mice, and so he feels like the police and the FBI are not making quick enough progress, and so he hires Derwood and Quaid to come in and uh, and see if they can speed up the process of apprehending the mice and stopping these attacks. Now, this is interesting. You mentioned Piper at the beginning. So Piper and Molly become friends. So why did Piper let Molly help and why did her son want to be a mouse, a mice? Yeah, that so was interesting. Book, I'd, yeah, want to want book, to be, I'd want to be one too, maybe. <laughs> right, right. As, as the book begins, yeah, in chapter one with, with yeah. Molly, we see her at home and with her dealing with her kids, and then Quaid and Durr would come and ask her to be part of the team and help with this infiltration. But the first thing we see in the book is uh, is Zach, the 14-year-old, who's wearing his shirt from the blind mice. You know, I mean, the blind mice are yeah. kind of – They've sort of productized their whole movement here, and there's a there's a nose, ears, whiskers symbol that they have, and Zach actually gets has a T-shirt, and Molly says, "You you can't wear that. You can't wear that to school." Um, so he, he he's kind of an enthusiast. Just you know, he's 14 years old. He's idealistic. He just kind of thinks they're rebels and they're cool. You know, I don't think he's really thought through what it means to be you know what is essentially a, a domestic terrorist, right? In this name of this cause, um, so. Uh, so Piper so at some point later in the story yeah he will try to become uh, join up with the mice and so Molly has Mm -hmm. to there's a key point there a a really high pressure point in in the the book where she appeals to Piper who's you know got this important role in the mice to um, to to keep him out of it right Um, and she's become friends with Piper you know, as part of her infiltration, and that's a, that's a hard thing for Molly to deal with because she she really does feel this kinship with Piper, and that Piper is a good person deep down underneath, you know, this angry exterior. Um, 
and she struggles with the fact that she is in the group under false pretenses. So she's friends with Piper. She kind of needs to turn Piper in order to, for them to, mm. to catch the mice, but she feels bad about it. She feels a lot of guilt about it, and so how she navigates that relationship drives a lot of scenes where she's, she's trying to, you know, she's working on behalf of the guys and the Third Chance Enterprises team, but she also doesn't want to personally betray Piper. It's, a, it's the thing that she struggles with throughout the book. Well, you, sometimes you have to do what you have to do. Right. Now, the guy that I didn't like is Josiah. Yeah. He's a voice, and he's uncontrollable, and he really needs some Xanax or some Valium or something to, <laughs> you know, to, to, to calm this guy down. So right. why is he the voice, and what happened at Shopwell? I mean, it's like, yeah, so just, oh, my God, I don't, I don't want to be in the same state as him. Yeah, no, for sure, neither do I. No, Josiah is the leader of the blind mice. He's kind of the the lightning rod. He tweets. He's got this Twitter account, Josiah the Avenger, where he tweets out these kind of big ominous threats against governments and corporations. And, you know, he's kind of one of these cult of personality types, kind of like a Charles Manson, you know, helter-skelter type. You know, he's wild, he's passionate, um, and I think – you know, that kind of personality can cut a couple of different ways. And so it, as the book begins, he's drawn a lot of people to the movement, you know, to this anti-corporate movement with his energy and passion and his zeal. Um, but, of course, you know, that kind of passion uh, can go the other way. It's hard to moderate it. It's hard to turn mm-hmm. it around. Um, and so with Shopall, um Shopall is a kind of a big box store. You know, it kind of harkens back to something like Walmart something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and as the anarchy progresses throughout the book, most of these big uh, big box stores go out of business because they're, they're, uh, their supply chains are cut off and you know there's all kinds of pranks that are played on them. But shop all is kind of a holdout. And so as the book goes on, Josiah, he feels like they, they symbolize consumerism and the, this kind of this shopping culture that he doesn't like. And so it's really important for him to attack shop all. And it's kind of a, a little bit of a nonsensical, sensical attack and some of the other mice mm-hmm. like Molly and Hatch um, who we haven't talked about yet but some of the other mice don't really go along with it and I think it just kind of shows when you have a big movement like that it's hard to mm-hmm. kind of keep it going on the same track and it's easy for it to splinter off and everybody has their own idea of what should be the priorities and what things need to change so um, so yeah, Josiah and he's, he's the epitome of splintering even within his own his own mind you know, he doesn't kind of know where he's going all the time. So it, it makes it really hard to know what's coming next from the mice. It's scary. So we've got a few more people that are affiliated with these people that are not very nice people. We have <laughs> Eves Pomeroy, Henry Rivard, and Fabienne. So what do they have to do with anything? And then there's Therese. This right. is like so many people. You don't want to know them right, people. Right, right. Well, you don't it's, want it's, to. it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's a big book with lots of, Characters and stuff at 450 pages. So yeah, we we're gonna meet a lot yeah. of uh, a lot of interesting characters. Yeah. So so Henry and and Eve are both uh, kind of older guys that work for Rivard LLC. So Rivard LLC is a big French conglomerate, um, mm. and they're they're a longtime nemesis of Third Chance Enterprises of Quaid and Durwood. Um, they we kind of hear some backstory about how Rivard has had some you know different plots for world domination. And so, predictably, um, they have some role to play here with the anarchy. Um, so, 
And Henri Rivard was the longtime CEO of Rivard, and he's been in charge of a lot of these kind of evil doings that they've done. But he's gotten old and kind of frail and senile as the book begins, and his daughter, Fabian, has taken over. Um, and she is, she is kind of, you know, sharp and also just as ruthless as Henry, um, but she's got her own, her own agenda. And so Eve, again, was kind of like another older guy with Henry. They mm-hmm. were kind of part of the, yeah. this patriarchy in France, you know, this kind of male-centric scene. And when Fabian comes in to take over for her father, she's got this idea to really change the culture and to install gender equality. So even though, she, you know, she's a, a bad character, you know, because she's behind a lot of these world domination plots, but she's got some more interesting ideas about changing the corporate culture and things like that. So she she installs Teresa Laurent, who's one of her friends, who's also a very kind mm-hmm. of capable young woman, to be in charge of Eve, who used to be really high up in, in the the, uh, the company of Rivard. So, yeah, you know, as the book goes on, you kind of learn more about these, these dynamics politically in, in Rivard LLC, which is one of the villains of the story. Um, but I did want to kind of put a little more complexity mm-hmm. and uh, interest among the villains and have them not just be, you know, these sort of uh, evil characters that are twiddling their thumbs in some back room. You know, they've got their own uh, personal things going on and interesting dynamics, and not all of them are, are terrible. Some of them are more interesting, like these kind of gender equality things that Fabian has going on. Well, they're not exactly the most boring people, and you're going to have to, and when you read the book, you need to focus so that you get the point. No, seriously. Mm-hmm. And I did read it, and then I read it again to make sure I got it. Yeah, I, I read, I mean, there's like 400 some odd pages. It takes me two hours, maybe a little bit, you know, less or more, but this one I took my time because there are a lot of pages. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it yeah. Is, and then the second, yeah, and the second book of the of the series, which is out at the same time, is is kind of the opposite, right? Because it's only it's only about 170 pages, so they're very different books. Yeah. Yeah, but the book was had a bigger font. That's why I knew it. <laughs> I read it in an hour. The font was bigger. Whoever printed this one, they would they, this font has to be bigger, people. But I read it. So why are cyber? What are cyber safe and cyber parlay? And how do they complement each other? That was interesting too. Yeah, so Rivard is a, another big conglomerate like American Dynamics. They they make stuff in a range of industries, and so one of the things that they do is software. And so CyberSafe and CyberParlay are two parts of their antivirus software. So they have, you know, without getting into the weeds too much of the of the tech stuff. And there's not all that much tech talk in in this book, but CyberSafe is an antivirus, you know, product that they have, and CyberParlay is a is a product that helps that antivirus software talk to other antivirus software or talk to government systems or stuff like that. So these are going to be part of the nitty-gritty of uh, and involved in some of the data loss that goes on that starts the anarchy. How did they accomplish the data loss? So Molly and Eve take a tour of the company. So how do he use the badge to get them in? They don't even realize it. Right, right. So it, later in the story, the the Third Chance yeah. Enterprises they get some intelligence that that Rivard LLC, yeah. the French company, is has some role to play, and so they need to get deep inside the corporate fortress, which is a place called Roche Rivard. It's kind of outside Paris, mm-hmm. and it's this almost this like Willy Wonka of corporate headquarters where they've got all this extreme security and things going on. So they send Molly undercover with Eve Pomeroy, who is 
you know, he works for Rivard, but he's kind of on the outs because Fabian has is favored Teresa Laron and some other people, and so Eve becomes one of the uh, conspirators of the of the Third Chance Enterprise team. So they send Eve and Molly in into danger to try to find some more intelligence about what might be going on with the the truth about why the data is disappearing. Wow, that is interesting. So here we got another character, people. I'm not sure you're going to like this person, but we're going to bring him in anyway. We've got Blake Leathersby. What's his role? There's a lot of bad so, guys in this story. Yeah, yeah, so Blake Leathersby is a mercenary. He's an English mercenary, and he's your like sort him. of muscled-up jerk. Uh, you know, he he has a history with Derwood especially. You know, they're both kind of mm. the military types. He's from the U.K., Derwood's from the U.S., um, they they fought on the same side of Desert Storm together, but you know they have big cultural differences. You know, uh, you know Durwood is somebody who goes to, back to his farm in West Virginia, and you know bales hay and, and does kind of honest work to get his strength. And Blake Leathersby is the guy who's always in the gym and pumping iron and probably taking steroids and anything else he can. Um, and so after Desert Storm, yeah, Blake Leathersby becomes just a mercenary. He he works for all kinds of bad guys. The the Third Chance Enterprises team is going to fight. And as the story begins here, he's joined up with Rivard LLC. So he's he works for the French company here uh, in kind of a muscle muscle head capacity. So he and Durwood go back a long ways as adversaries. That's interesting. Now where am I on my paper here? Now. There's a source code that Piper needs in order to get something done. So Josiah wants to get the source code for her, but they won't connect him to Fabian. So what happens when he agrees to a handover? That was really difficult. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it's hard. I mean, I don't want to say too much about the the plot no, point, yeah. but, Josiah, but Josiah does. You know, as the book goes on, Josiah becomes partners also with the, the Third Chance team, um, and so. Quaid, Derwood, and Molly have to work with Josiah. They've got to kind of find a way to use, to to work together to get at the true bad guys here, um, and th- that's not going to be easy because Josiah, as we talked about, you know, yeah. he is like a Manson kind of helter skelter person. So it's very di- it's very difficult and uh, to control him and to have him set things up in a way that's going to come out right. And they don't really know if they can trust him. They don't really know if if they put him into a pressure pack situation, if he'll, you know, respond well. Um, mm. And the one who's left to, to kind of deal with that is Quaid, because Quaid is the big talker and the loquacious one. And mm. so there's some scenes as the story goes on between Quaid and Josiah where they kind of talk about the philosophy, philosophy of the anarchy and, you know, what might be next for Josiah and how he can recover from from how things have turned out. So... Whenever there's kind of a, you know, talking to be done, Quaid's the one of the three that has to go in there and do it. <laughs> well, this bothers me, too. What methods does Derwood employ that he hopes will track his team, and how do they capture Molly and Piper? And I got really nervous because I really didn't want, Piper was turning to be a nice person, and mm. I didn't want her to be dead. Okay. Right, right, no, definitely not. Yeah, so Derwood, where, you know, whereas Quaid's method is always talking and, and, and his gift of gab. Durwood is the opposite. He's the he's our kind of yeah. ex-military type. So he's Durwood's methods are usually kind of guns and ammo, and 
you know, he's got a lot of kind of exotic James Bond-style gadgets. He's got, you know, at some point he uses an, an invisibility suit in the story. He's using mics that are built into earrings. He's got these exotic sonic weapons, you know, that create these big sound booms later in the story. Um, and, and they're all in this, uh, they drive this beat-up Vanagon that they take around. It's kind of like the mobile headquarters for the Third Chance Enterprises team. So, Dur, you know, if um, if Quaid's the silver tongue, Durwood is the one who's who's really got the the muscle and the and the iron fist to when they need it for these missions. Um, and so, yeah, m- there's part of the team that's going to be captured, and uh, they, I think, that we 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 all know it's coming that the team is going to have to go. Part of the team is going to have to go into the corporate headquarters and and do the kind of mm-hmm. the Mission Impossible style rescue. So that that's definitely coming. Well, the one thing about everybody about Jeff Bond's books is they're different. No two are the same, and you never know what he's going to write about. Which is good. I mean, when I got this book, I had no idea. But I'm reading it like this is really cool. This is interesting. And if you listen right. to the news, if you actually if you made this a television movie, I think there'd be an awful lot of people trying to be like the blind mice. If you look at <laughs> yeah, the no, it's funny. Outside. I actually give. One of the people here who's local who who I give always give my books to, uh, I gave him, I left a, a couple copies of Anarchy of the Mice and Dear Derwood on his doorstep, and he told me later that he didn't he didn't think they were my books. He thought they were from somebody else because on the back covers it's got my my author picture. My my cover artist took it and kind of did it in an adventure style, kind of an old pulp retro yeah. style. So he said, I thought this was, I thought somebody else wrote this because it, it also, you know, the books are kind of these big, almost comic book style over the top adventures. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the other, thr- you know, the couple of the other thrillers that I've written have been more kind of, you know, gritty, realistic stories, right? So it is, yeah, this is kind of a little bit of a departure. And, you know, the cover art and, and doing the big retro pulp covers is part of what I wanted to do was communicate that to readers that, hey, this might be a little different than what you've seen from me before. Yeah, I got that. And the cover's really good, too. But if you didn't read The Pine Box Vendetta, you got to read it, because that's really good. See, that one was good. I can't wait to see the sequel to that. Right. Just a hint. So <laughs> who is really running the mice, and what plans do they have for them, and who is Garrison? I mean, really, behind the scenes everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So I think, uh, I, I probably shouldn't say who's running the mice, but I will say that, you know, the mm-hmm. mice, like any one of these movements, you know, where it starts out being very virtuous and they have an I- they have their, these pure ideals, uh, all these things are kind of subject to being corrupted um, as the movement grows and everybody kind of wants to get their their hand in the in the pie and, and maybe change things around. So um, I think it there was there's a lot of risk for the mice as they go on that they'll lose their original purpose and be co-opted either for somebody seeking their own power or trying to 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 reorient things the way they want the world to be um garrison now now garrison's a, a character who is a mouse uh blind mice who's described as having amazing hair <laughs> and uh he becomes kind of a secondary love interest to molly so we know that molly and quaid have this long-running flirtation um, and then, but Garrison is a is a kind of an attractive young guy who becomes a, a secondary love interest of Molly. So, because these these third chance books do have kind of they have sort of romance on the side. I mean, they're not primarily mm-hmm. romance stories, but I did you know in the vein of giving every reader a character to root for. I also wanted to mm-hmm. add some romance and have there be enough romance that people 
who really like that as their main mode of stories can enjoy them and will want to pick them up. Well, what I really admire about Molly is the guilt. Yeah. I can't believe she opened up to Piper. That was brave because Piper could have just taken her out at that particular point. So how did you create that? I really had to respect her because, you know, who's going to do that? Right, right. I think yeah, that that dynamic is important throughout the whole story where, you know, Molly is embedded in the mice and she needs to get Piper to to turn against Josiah and the rest of the mice, you know, and that's what Quaid and Durr would want her to do, you know, and they're her her Mm -hmm. partners. But she's got this, you know, she's a little bit in between a rock and a hard place where she's, you know, part of the job is to turn Piper and maybe she needs to be duplicitous to do that, but she feels a lot of guilt and personal responsibility towards Piper. I mean, Piper did keep her son out of the blind mice um, and she's got this connection with Piper and so she's always navigating and fi- trying to find some kind of of a middle way where she can do mm. you know meet the demands of the job but also not betray Piper you know and I think she feels like deep down Piper knows that the things that the blind mice are doing aren't right or at least the things that they come to do later in the story aren't right so she does feel like, you know, getting Piper to come over to their side is the, is the right thing for Piper, who's, you know, after all, very young herself. So she's just she's she's just got to kind of white, walk that tightrope of um, of the mission and her friendship with Piper. So how does Derwood manage to get into Rochefort, and what is his goal? You see, you gotta love this guy because he is so creative that if you're in trouble, this is the guy you want to help you get out of it or live anyway. Right, right. I mean, with Derwood, he's got lots of guns and ammo. He's got lots of tricks up his sleeve and kind of funny little, uh, funny little gadgets that they can use. Uh, and he's determined. I mean, he, he's never gonna, he's never gonna stop until he gets his goal. And he's, you know, Derwood's got this very black and white world view. You know, he wants justice. He wants to do right. You know, he feels like Rivard is, and and the people behind the anarchy. Uh, and lawlessness in general is just a plague on society, and he's he's going to keep going with everything he's got until he does right. Whereas Quaid, on the other hand, is more he sees shades of gray, you know, and he's got a lot of he has more moral ambiguity with what he'll do. And in fact, Quaid even has some dalliances with Fabian Rivard, mm-hmm. um, who's the, the arch villain, and and then we learn that he's done business with Fabian Rivard in kind of a side hustle capacity. So. They, they see the world very differently. They get into lots of little mm. spats, almost like an old married couple, Quaid and Derwood are. Um, but when it comes, when the job, when it's time to do the job, yeah, Derwood is just head down, focused on justice and and doing right. Well, this I can identify with. Mm. Quaid and Zach. I'm not going to say why I can identify with that. See, because he's, he wants to date Molly. So how does he hope to bond with Zach? And that is a very smart thing to do, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So Quaid, he, um, you know, he he, he spends, again, like everything else, Quaid's answer is always talk. So he's going to get in and talk with 14-year-old Zach and try to empathize with what Zach is feeling. I mean, Zach has a lot of, you know, Zach's coming of age at this crazy time when the world is upside down. And so he tries to kind of get inside Zach's head and talk and, and you know later in the book when Molly's in danger he's got to he's got to give some delicate answers to both Zach and Karen uh, Molly's kindergarten daughter um 
and as you know it's a tough moment for Quaid's character because you know he's a bachelor he's you know he's he's always kind of looking to stay a free agent and stuff like that and so it's a big step for him to step into that domestic situation of Molly's and uh and, and really insert himself and, and invest his character in that you know and it's a departure for Quaid because he you know he he's kind of again he's he's a ladies man and he's hesitant mm. to go all the way to do that but uh, it's it's part of his growth arc throughout the book that that he he is willing to do that and, and engage with Zach, you know, for Molly's behalf. This is the third one in the series, or the sec- this is the second one, and then Dear Jerwood is the third one, but it's different, right? Well, dear, so this is the first one here, Anarchy of the Mice. Dear Jerwood yeah. is the second one. And then yeah. the third one is going to be called The Begonia Killer, and that one focuses on Molly. So that's kind of Molly's book, yeah. Oh, I was worried. That's what a question I was going to ask to make sure you were bringing her back. Is Quaid yeah. coming back too, I hope? I oh, yeah. So Quaid, Molly, Molly, and Derwood are the three principals. Now. And so <laughs> they are all, you know, they're, they're kind of going to be the constants. I think we'll see some of the side characters come back in some of the other stories too. Mm-hmm. Um and in fact, Quaid, Molly, and Derwood are all on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I actually mm-hmm. I have a website called ThirdChanceStories.com where oh, you nice. can see all their all their Facebook and Twitter posts. And and on my own author Facebook page and Twitter, I will forward. Um, they have mm-hmm. little short stories or small adventures that they have uh, all the time, and I try to update it every day. So yeah, Molly, Quaid, and Derwood are the three main ones. They're definitely coming back for more adventures. Yeah. That's good, because I think Zach should join them, because he sounds like a cool kid, my kind of kid. No, yeah, and we actually get more of Zach in some of the social media stuff that I'm doing on the, on the oh, site. Oh, good. The stuff, because, you know, I think one of the things that I, I wanted to do is mm. people this with a lot of interesting secondary characters. Like, you know, I know there's a question here about the grandmother and, and yeah. things like that. Oh, but, I laugh. I know, was just going to ask that question. Tell us about yeah. I love the grandmother. She's so cool. Yeah, the grand. Yeah, so the grandmother is, uh, Molly's grandmother lives with them, and she helps out with the babysitting when she can, mm-hmm. although, you know, she's kind of losing it a little bit, so she's not always clear on what's going on with Zach and his friends and things like that. But, you know, we find Molly's grandmother comes down with in slippers and curlers, and she's, you know, very opinionated. She hates Quaid. She thinks Quaid is, is a no-good, you know, and so she, she, you know, reads Quaid the riot act whenever she's around, Um so she, you know, and she just makes things hard for Molly in general. She complains about Molly's Tupperware classification system in the kitchen and, <laughs> and things like that. So she's just, you know, one of the things that makes Molly's domestic situation uh, a tough thing to balance with all the things she has to do on top of that, you know, with Third Chance Enterprises. She reminds me of my mother. <laughs> That's all I will. Yeah, my mother was tough, too. She, if it wasn't perfect in her way, you did it wrong. So I just said to her, right. okay, you do it for me. I eventually just said, do it for me. Don't don't even worry about it. It's okay. So what does he ask of Quaid? And why does he, when does Zach realize that his mother is in danger? And he asks Quaid something direct. And then we're going to get into something really good here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So when, when Quaid does, as I say, step into the, the domestic situation, yeah, Zach kind of confronts him and says, and kind of accuses Quaid and Derwood of, of, really putting his mother in danger, you know, and that's yeah. that's something that that's, that Quaid's got to address. And it's something that, you know, Durwood throughout the book has a lot of anxiety, or I 
I don't know if anxiety is the right word, but a lot of angst about the fact that they're asking Molly to do all these dangerous things. And mm. Quaid's a little more breezy with it and, you know, transactional, and he can rationalize it away. But when it comes down to it, yeah, Quaid's the one who's got to answer to the kids and uh, and give some sort of evasive answers so that they won't, you know, be too scared and, and can keep things together back home with the grandmother. Okay, before I forget, I am totally honored... When I get these any anybody's interview, I get honored to interview everybody. I am surprised. On Wednesday, New York Times author of Dragonfire, Ted Bell, has agreed to do an hour with me. I think that's amazing. Um, we've we've got award-winning author Deborah Deb Pines with Crooked Paths. On the 14th, um, we have um, Alan Jacobson with uh, Red Death. Scary. Don't don't ever drink any um, Kool-Aid or anything like that, because if it's red, you're going to be dead. Seriously. And Hawaiian Punch. Uh, 916, Brian Freeman's going to be back with a funeral for a friend, which is my favorite person, uh, Jonathan Stride. On the 22nd, Are We Buried? And on the 24th, Checked Out for Murder. And on the 31st, Save... Um, Susan Wingate is is coming on uh, with How the Deer Hunter Dear Hunter Hungers. And we'll start off September 3rd is Deb Pines. It's a really interesting lineup, and September's really going to be fun. And um, so what does she do to Pomeroy? I thought that was priceless, by the way. Yeah, so Sue Ann is, uh, is Derwood's, Derwood's yeah. dog, and Sue Ann is probably uh, maybe the favorite character of most people in the, in the story. She's an old, she's described as an yeah. aged blue tick coonhound. We never really find out how old Sue Ann is, but we know that she's very old. She's loyal. She's clever. She's got this bum hip um, that causes her to limp around a lot of the time. Um, but there are a few yeah. plot points where Sue Ann, the dog, really comes I in, love into her. play. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> she, you know, she kind of, I think, uh, lulls the antagonist into complacency with her appearance and the fact that she doesn't get around so well. But she always rises to the occasion and, and finds a way to just, in, in a very subtle way, uh, tip things into the uh, to the favor of Third Chance Enterprises. Yeah. She's a cool, cool animal, and you want her on your side. And when you read Dear Dear Derwood, you'll know why I'm saying that. That's what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. Plus, we have, we have Bella Bella. That's my brother's dog, and she loves me, but she just misses me because I'm not there. But she would probably be the same thing. In a world filled with corporate heads primarily concerned with profits and no losses, and if you listen to the news, you'll know that's true, how does what the mice want to do change and the structure at the top of these companies? And what is their ultimate goal? And what would happen if they actually succeeded? Yeah, so I think the, the blind mice, as the story starts, they really think that, you know, there have been a lot of efforts to change things and, you know, maybe you can change tax rates and things like that, but they feel like none of it has really created any real change. So they have an idea to have this more direct, these more direct consequences for CEOs and to make uh, to make them personally responsible for the things that they do. So, um, and, um, you know, not to give it away, but they, they you know, yeah. they, they feel like it has to be a, a violent kind of a, uh, of a consequence uh, and that it's not enough just to have the balance sheets or, 
you know, because CEOs can always change positions and leave the, the place that they wreck, so they feel like the consequences need to be very personal and, and in your face. It would be scary if they actually succeeded. Seriously? Right, right. Yeah. You, you, yeah. Just, you, just don't, you just don't know. Okay, so. But, but why the violence? When they were taken down financially, why do they feel that they have to be violent also? Yeah, and that's the point that Piper Jackson makes yeah. early on, you know, when Piper says, well, look, we've, we've wrecked this company. In fact, they've they've wrecked the finances of the CEO yeah. that they meet up with at the end of the first part, you know, so we should get out of here. You know, we're hackers. That's what we do. You know, we don't, we don't need to yeah. do violence. But Josiah, you know, and this is just, again, part of his kind of helter-skelter, passion, wild personality, mm-hmm. he just, in the moment... He, it's not enough for him. He thinks they have to go farther. And we do find out in that scene, later in that scene, that there is a very personal reason why Josiah has this grudge yeah. against a certain healthcare executive. So we do find out, even though he's he's nonsensical and erratic in a lot of ways, we do find out that there's a very personal uh, grievance that he has against this healthcare executive that causes him to go the extra step of taking this very this very violent act. Well, you know, a lot of people have a lot against a lot of health care, seriously. Right. And right. basically, you know, health care now is just strictly telehealth. Well, if you're lucky, mm-hmm. you get a phone call back. And it, it's scary because what happens when, when they, you know, they take down their things financially or whatever, so the company is literally ruined for good and they can't get back up on their feet? So they actually achieve their goal if they, if they can. Right, they definitely try. Yeah, yeah, and by the end of the story, of course, there are all kinds of just just like right now, we have all kinds of businesses kind of uh, uh-huh. falling under. It's uh, yeah, there, there's going to be a, a lot of play, a lot of uh, corporations going under in the story. Uh-huh. The scary part is that the small businesses, this Channel Twelve, and I have to admire them because they do. You know, we're open on Fridays, and you uh-huh. know, the the small businesses, but. The sad part is, is that one of my favorite places to shop is this deli, and a deli similar to that just opened right next door. Oh, really? Shopping center, yeah. yeah and I think they're going to do something because they have they're able to have outdoor seating, and oh, the one that, that I go to does it. Yeah, I have a feeling that I, they better not go down because Chef Maria make a twins deli. Everybody in Hostel, she makes me anything I want, so I feel bad. So yeah. How did you create the final scenes with both groups together? And what part does Suzanne play? You know, everybody needs a dog like her. She's cool, let me tell you. And wait till yeah, you yeah. Derwood, you're going to flip out. She's great. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. The, the, um, I actually wrote, I wrote the first book draft of this book maybe eight years ago. It was, it was the first really thriller book mm-hmm. that I wrote. I mean, I didn't really, you know, at that point I hadn't written The Wintermaker or Black Crest 40 or Pine Box or anything like that. And so I, I really didn't have a good idea of how you kind of keep it all together. And thriller writing was a little mm-hmm. bit new to me then. So when I finally decided to come back to it a few years ago and kind of finish it, I had all these kind of threads and kind of interesting scenes and elements um, it, at the climax to work together and uh, and I, it did take me a while to kind of weave it together in a way that brought everybody's character arc together 
and you know maintain the the right kind of rising tension that you know readers of thrillers need. So, and in, in a lot of times, I think when you go back to an old draft that you've had to kind of make a lot of changes to, it can be harder than it would be just to write it straight ahead, you know, and just to just to write it from scratch. So, it took me a while to make sure that everything was balanced, mm-hmm. and everything, and and I think at, at the very end, you know, the the character that made sense to turn the plot, I think, was definitely mm-hmm. Suzanne, who's the most kind of unassuming of of all the characters. So. Um, so it, it was a, it was a, like a lot of writing, as, as you know, Fran. I mean, it's just a lot of hammering, a lot mm-hmm. of revising, and and trying to balance elements in a pleasing way for readers. Yeah. I have to learn how to do that. That's why I'm listening <laughs> to what you're saying, because I just write the book and I hand it to Maxine to fix it. <laughs> there you go. Well, that the problem is, is that she, she edits my typos or my grammar, or whatever. But I don't get too much on content, and I feel like you know, if I if you don't like what I wrote, if I should change it. You know, I do listen because I don't seem to be perfect. So mm-hmm. if that's true, usually after the the you know the final copy, whatever, I just say well, I, don't, I don't even read it, which is not good. Mm-hmm. I'll give it to other people to read and pray that yeah. it makes sense. It usually does, but you know, I have to do what you're doing because you're right. It takes it takes a while. So a question that's not on my paper, but I have the book and I keep the book in front of me. Nobody gets the book until I'm done until the interview. How did you create the pictures of Molly? Quaid and Derwood. They, I mean, seriously, they they just sort you of mean, say it. Oh, uh, you mean on the back of the book there? Back cover. Well, we see Jeff on the back cover too, but we see the characters, and they sort of fit exactly yeah, who they yeah. are. Yeah, I have my cover artist is a guy named Ethan Scott who lives in Arizona, and he's he's done a lot mm-hmm. of really cool cartoon work and comic book work, and so it, when the when I started the process of, of getting cover art, you know, I said, well, you know, I have this idea to maybe do a website mm-hmm. and to do a lot of social media stuff with these three main heroes, Molly Quaid and Derwood. You know, I said, do you think you could, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll do the covers, but then do you think you could also do some art, you know, the, for some biopics, you know, for things like Facebook profile pictures and things like that? And he said, yeah, I think we can do that. And so we kind of went back and forth on what their looks should be and what their background was, and he read some of the stories. And so it was kind of a collaborative effort to come up with these kind of pulpy, you know, fun portraits of them mm-hmm. that we could use both online and then for the for the book cover art, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's different. It's, like, really different. Well, my problem is, well, for my book sisters, I picked the cover myself, and that seems to be going great. And the one I just wrote, What If? I picked the cover, too, and everybody thinks it's great. That's not yeah. that it's great, but I want you to read what's inside the cover. Seriously. Right, right. That's the important part, yeah. Yeah, so like I said before we went on the air, I did donate a, a whole bunch of my books to um, Ghana and to Honduras, to the people there, the two schools that don't have books. So maybe yeah. they'll like it. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So where do you see Molly and Quaid next? And uh, By yeah, the way, people, October 5th, Jeff will be back with Dear Derwood, just to let you know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's hard to say with Molly and Quaid. I mean, you know, Quaid is not the most reliable of uh, of men, for sure. You know, he's got a little bit of a checkered history with yeah, um, I know. with staying with things. And Molly, you know, is twice divorced, and so she's a little wary about getting burned. So I think it's hard to know. I don't think we can count on the two of them uh, staying together, but we can hope. But um, And I can see it going back and forth, but I, I, it, nothing, is, nothing is set in stone there. I think we have to keep reading to know. <laughs> okay, so what about Doc? 
Is he gonna? Be, he's my kind of kid, though. Cause I, I <laughs> you know, after a while, you, I, I became like that. You become a rebel. And what about Karen's fortress? What is what is she what is she gonna do to protect everyone? She's so cool. Too. She reminds me of my of my little niece. That's so cool. Right, right. So Karen, you know, uh, so Zach and Karen, of course, Molly's kids. I mean, I think Molly is hopeful as the story ends that Zach has gained some greater perspective on things yeah. and he's continuing to grow. But she realizes he's still a teenager, so she's. <laughs> She's not going to count on it necessarily. She's going to remain mm. vigilant and, and try to give him boundaries. But um, she hopes that kind of he's got more perspective as the story ha- has ended here. And then Karen, one of the things that happens in the story is Karen, mm. as the world gets crazier and Karen has to move from school to homeschool, just like we've all had yeah. to hear this year, Karen kind of retreats into herself and she builds this. She does a lot of things with her dolls and she builds this safety fortress with her dolls where she makes these big structures in the living room that are meant to keep her dolls safe. And obviously I think it's a it's a way that she's learned to deal with the chaos around her is to is to model it with her dolls. Um and so it, it kind of breaks Molly's heart to see her doing that and to see mm-hmm. her talking about her dolls being attacked and how they have to build a wall to to keep them safe and you know Molly is anxious about whether or not this is going to have long-term effects but I think we're hopeful as the story ends that you know kids are pretty adaptable and they can be pretty tough and that as long as Molly's there and continuing to you know provide love and support for her that uh, that Karen will get back to normal and maybe next month she won't be making safety fortresses but you know something more regular like uh you know gymnastics facilities or kitchens or something like that so i think she's hopeful that karen will get past the safety fortress stage it's almost like what's going on in the world a lot of kids are doing that right doing stuff at home and they're afraid that their dog is going to get covid19 so (laughs) what is next for you and where can everybody find out more about you and your work and i'm going to when i get a chance later i am going to look at the the graphics because I got I got to know these characters even more. Yeah, yeah. So so I, the next thing on my line is we talked about Pine Box Vendetta, so I'm certainly working on the yeah. next sequel for Pine Box. And then the third chance series here with Anarchy of the Mites and Dear Durwood. Um, the first two books are out. I know we're going to talk about Dear Durwood here in a few weeks. Um, and then I'm working on the next book in that series, which is called The Begonia Killer, which it features Molly. Um, but before oh, that, before those books come out, I, as I said, I do have the the site thirdchancestories.com where I put up, you know, little sort of short stories and, and quick takes using the three characters. It's just a way to maybe let readers uh, continue to connect with the uh, with the characters and mm-hmm. with me, you know, once they've finished books like that. So I do a lot of that. I, I, I kind of it keeps me fresh. I think to be keep inventing little adventures for them and post things online. Um, and I and I enjoy it, and I think some of the readers have enjoyed it as well. Just being able to engage and and see what see what some of the characters that they've gotten to know over the course of these two books are up to. <laughs> and where can everybody find out more about you and the rest of your books too? Right. So you can always go find me find Jeff Bond on Amazon, and all my books are available there. Um, my author website is uh, jeffbondbooks.com, um, and that's got information about you know, press clippings and appearances and things like that and, and summaries and links to all the all of my, my books. So that's that's the main site with the third chance stories site being kind of a secondary one that's just for these third chance books. Well I wanna thank you so much for brightening my day, seriously. 
Well, thanks this for having me. Really I always enjoyed it. It was fun last week. It was fun this week as well. Yeah, it's always good to talk to you. This was, this was this was fun. This is interesting. And the one thing about Jeff Bond, when you, when I get a book, I'm surprised, and it's just so different. than I just sit down and go, okay, what am I reading this time? And it's <laughs> nice, like I said, because like I said, I've been getting a whole lot of books that a lot of people like, and I would prefer. Not that I like root canal, but sometimes it's better than some of the books I've been getting. But everything I get from Partners in Crime is fantastic. I mean, I haven't got, and I am very excited to say, I hope I get more people. On October 1st, I start my tour with Cheryl and everybody for What If. What if I'm this is the world that I well. created? Yeah, you could read it. Anytime yeah. I want to read it, I hope I'd love to know what you think, seriously. Absolutely. Um, I got three five star reviews, but I can't. T- I couldn't. Can't tell you whether they really liked it or they just because it's me. I think they liked it. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm being honest. Um, like I said, my ten year old nephew thinks I'm a genius, so that made me feel good. And my twenty um, three year old nephew said to me, "I am really impressed." I said, "Well, at least somebody in my family knows I can, you know, write a word on paper." But um, <laughs> what if it has has one? Rabbit Toys is doing one started September seventh. I don't know how well that's going to work out, but they're trying. But Partners in Crime, it's going to be from October 1st to the end of October. So anybody out there that wants to read it and say something wonderful, that's fine. And if you say something that's not wonderful, oh, well, what could you do? (laughs) What can I say? But I reposted your five stars on my Amazon, on my Facebook wall, and your review is on my Facebook wall. And I want to thank you so much for brightening my day. And those of you, October 5th at 10, Jeff will be back with Dear Durwood. And when do you expect the next one to come out? <laughs> Just stick it in my schedule. <laughs> well, yeah, it's hard. I and mean, I think it's, I was hoping for later this year, but I think, you know, with COVID and my kids being home and all yeah. that, I think I've, I've kind of pushed it back to probably more like late spring of next year. Yeah, it's, uh, unfortunately, I think, you know, it's upsetting a lot of things for everybody. And, of course, if this is the worst of it for me, then I'm lucky. But um, yeah, I yeah, think me it'll be, too. Yeah. I haven't seen my nephews and my nieces ever in a while, and yeah. my niece, like my niece, started school today. I'm very proud of her, Katie Rose. I'm sure she's going to ace it. I'm just worried that she has to actually go to an, a class in person tomorrow. And then she actually listened, and I said to her, "This is what you don't do. You don't sit near anybody. You sit on the on the aisle so that when the bell rings, you get out." Right. <laughs> and, yeah. So can I say? So thank you so much. Everybody, it's beautiful outside. Have a great day, and bye.